Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. This is pretty cool for 10 weeks in to see the group of people and the leadership team that's developing and everybody who's serving and folks that are coming from around San Francisco and different parts of the Bay Area. I'm most excited about what is in God's heart for your future. We know that he loves this city. You know, in 1987, it was a summer of love in San Francisco, and it was free love and plenty of drugs and uh, these interesting individuals they called hippies. Historically, you can study them. And uh, actually, I, I was a young kid back in the day, and, and my parents would bring us over to San Francisco and go on down on the Haight and Ashbury and watch the hippies. And, uh, but everything went horribly wrong by the following summer, and uh, things got violent and strange. And... And there was a, a great void, an emptiness that was created at that time in America and the death of JFK and then Vietnam and there was all kinds of stuff going on. And in the middle of this, this vortex, this drought of, of love and grace, God said, watch this, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And he poured out his Holy Spirit starting in Southern California and it began to go up the coast, something known now historically in revival documentation as the Jesus movement. And it swept through San Francisco and I remember as a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, I would go with my parents who were in ministry at that time, and we'd come over to these gatherings in San Francisco and Las Gatas and Alameda and different places, and we'd pack into these small churches and these hippies who were disillusioned and coming off drugs, and they would sit in the floors, flowers still in their hair, forgot to take them out, no shoes on, ripped jeans. Ripped jeans were in back thin as well, so it's no new trend, people. Things just keep coming around. How many know that's true? And the Holy Spirit was poured out in, in that era. And I just believe deeply in my spirit that there's, there's coming another Jesus movement to California. And, and we know this biblically, that God saves the best wine for last. And, and we believe, uh, you can find this throughout the canon of scripture, that there is prophesied a coming wave of the presence of God and an ingathering uh, of souls or a harvest before the second coming of Christ. And so I truly believe in faith that what we're planting all over Northern California now, we just planted the Father's House, Orange County, and uh, we got some folks wanting to go to Oakland and Midtown Sacramento that... What God is doing through our church and many others is he's preparing us for really a move of his spirit that's unprecedented. So I want to welcome you into that. And maybe you're new to faith today and, and you're like, well, that's pretty grandiose. But let me just say that that speaks specifically of, of your gifting and your future. The way God does anything great in the earth is he builds a team. So don't, don't overlook your capacity to be a part of something that will affect eternity. Because God's looking at your gifting, your calling, and uh, he's going to do something great. Amen? Well, I got, a, I got a, a couple stories to tell you, a little bit of word to go to. We love studying the Bible because it's alive and it's powerful. God has the ability to speak to you specifically through his word. But let me just honor Pastor Tim and Robin. Come on, give it up for your pastors. For coming to San Francisco investing there. There's a great investment financially, but of their life and of their hopes and of their dreams. And I started a conversation with Tim about five years ago in my office. I said, Hey, have you thought about San Francisco? And out of that conversation, God began to do something in their heart, but there's a laying down of your agenda in order to walk into God's agenda. You know, Jesus said in John 12, he said, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. 
but if it will die, it produces many seeds. And we know Jesus was talking about his life as a seed being fallen into the ground, into a tomb, and then resurrected, but he's also speaking about you. He said, if you love your life, then lose your version of it. If you want to find life, then give up your agenda, your plans, your goals, and embrace his. And I know that in order to plant a great church, that has to happen. First of all, in your pastors, to give up their agenda and say, God, we'll lay down our lives for what you want to do in this city. You know, nearly 22 years ago, I was having this conversation with the Lord. We were eight people in a living room in a place that I'd barely heard of called Vacaville. Long story how I got there. I'm still working that out with the Lord. But anyway, and I told the Lord this when I, I had the understanding he wanted us to plant a church. I said, God, if you'll grace us, if you pour out your spirit, I will stay here for the rest of my days and do ministry out of this town that hardly anybody knows about. And for 22 years now, we've seen God multiply it over and over in thousands and thousands of people. Amen. It's pretty amazing. And so I had this conversation, God, I'm willing to lay down my agenda here. And then I look back and think, why didn't I pray that prayer in Huntington Beach or Newport? What was I thinking? But anyway, so as you guys invest into San Francisco, as you lay down your agenda, there is literally thousands and I believe tens of thousands of people that will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus through what God does through this church. Amen. And I'm glad to be a part of it. Well, was your Thanksgiving well? Did you have a great one? You know, we, uh, we gather around tables at Thanksgiving, don't we? And I, I hope you had a, a wonderful time around the, the table. Uh, I had both of my daughters and their husbands. I have three grandsons and a granddaughter that will be here in about two weeks. And so our family is growing. I had my sister and her uh, husband, Randy, my brother-in-law from Oregon. They're on the front row. They were with us. And so it was just a great holiday. And we had lots of food prepared. And I got a friend, his name's Tom the Baker. He made berry pie, pizza pecan pie, pumpkin pie, more pie than you should ever eat in any given setting. And we did our best to consume it for the glory of God. There's always a post-Thanksgiving repentance of gluttony. It's all part of the package, people. But we invited a family from Birmingham, Alabama that had just moved out here and they didn't have a place to go and, and two beautiful daughters and somehow they'd met Jude and Sis through our, at our church and, and Jude and Sis knew they didn't have a place so uh, we invited them over. So we had a pretty good group there but I, I recognized something. We had to sit out extra tables extra tables for our guests, extra tables for our relatives and we had even a, a tiny table for the little people that were there. And you know, we didn't set out tables because it was just the, the normal folks showing up. It takes extra tables for those who are on their way, those who've been invited. And I wanna to talk to you about the table of the Father's house in San Francisco. The table's plenty big right now, but there are tables that will be set out in, in the manner of other services and other locations and satellite campuses and other ministries and community outreach. Hey, not for those of you that are here. And be careful, you professional Christians that have been around the church for a little while. You get comfortable being a Christian. You got your local church, you love your pastor, you love your style of worship and the way he exegetes the word. And you kind of get comfortable cruising in and out of church. And I gotta remind you, it's not about you. And Jesus loves you, don't get me wrong. You are precious in his sight. But your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You're gonna spend eternity in heaven. Things are good. Even if you're in debt, things are good today. Life is a puff of smoke. You're gonna live forever with the king. Is anybody hearing what I'm saying this morning? So I have to remind you that church is not about you. You're preparing a table for the people that aren't here yet. That God is bringing in folks that are broken and far from him, and he's gonna pull up a table for them, amen? Amen. 
You know, uh, Jesus, toward the end of his ministry, uh, he goes to the Feast of, of Tabernacles, the largest feast in the feast calendar of Israel. And, and uh, toward the end of the feast, he kind of snuck in because they were trying to kill him, the Pharisees and, and those in, in the religious uh, hierarchy were trying to take him out. So he slides in the last day and they've been eating and drinking for seven days and reading the Torah and dancing as a party. Around roughly 100,000 people showed up for the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the final day, Jesus stands up and he says, hey, and he, he yells out a ancient quote from Isaiah 55. Is anybody thirsty? Come to me and drink freely of the water of life. And I'm sure much to the chagrin and perhaps embarrassment of the disciples, I could see Peter elbowing Jesus saying, Jesus, these people have been eating and drinking for seven days, bro. Are you okay, Lord? Can I get you something? Because I don't know if you've seen all these tables, but there is a plethora of refreshing beverages left over. I don't think anybody's thirsty. But Jesus wasn't talking about a physical thirst, was he? He was talking about a thirst that can't be quenched at your typical feast. As I think about San Francisco, I, I think it's a feast. I, well, first of all, it's rated as one of the highest culinary experiences in the world right now. You guys got some good grub up in here. So it's a culinary feast. It's, a, it's an artistic feast. It's a financial feast. There's opportunities. There's wealth. There's influence. There's sports. And people come to the city. They come to this region to live their dream and to have it all and gain it all. And they eat and they feast. And, but they're still thirsty. And to quote the Old Testament prophet Bono, they still haven't found what they're looking for. Why? Because Jesus said there is a, there's a deep desire in people's hearts not to just have a great job in entertainment, but to know the source of living water. And that's why you're here. And maybe today you're thirsty in your spirit and Jesus has prepared a place for you. So I want to take a few minutes to go to the Word, talk to you about tables and a, a feast that, that God is preparing for people. And today I, I want to... Um, talk to you about the story of a young man who um, never expected uh, an invitation to a feast and to a table uh, and tucked in the pages of the history of the reign of King David. You find this obscure story, actually probably in your Bible, in many translations, it's in parentheses. It doesn't fit in, in the dialogue that's going on. And right here in 2 Samuel chapter 4, if you have a paper Bible, is there anybody left on the earth that carries a paper Bible? Wave at me. Love me some paper Bibles. Don't ever give them up, folks. How many digital Bibles? Your thumbs are well exercised. Need thumb therapy. Got you. And so get out your Bible. You can take a couple notes. The Holy Spirit may say something to you in the next few minutes. But 2 Samuel 4 says this. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. It's a very sad story about a five-year-old boy, an innocent boy, an adorable boy. Now, we know all kids are, are adorable when they're small, but let me just tell you about this one so you get some clarity. Uh, his grandfather, Saul, King Saul, the Bible says of him that he was a very handsome man. He stood head and shoulders among, among the rest of the men in Israel. And the way they did it in antiquity is the selection of queens and those who uh, reproduced for the kings, uh, they would take the most beautiful of all virgins in the kingdom and they would select them. And this went on 
generation after generation intentionally. So the palace people were a very elite, uh, in fact, genetic modification in humans was in play far beyond the dawn of modern day science is what I'm trying to tell you. So I want you to see this beautiful, adorable five-year-old boy, the grandson of a king living in a palace, but then one day everything goes horribly wrong. You see, King Saul had turned from the ways of God and in his wickedness, God's presence had lifted up off him and he, he searched for counsel and guidance from a witch and, and that eventually led to the downfall and demise of his army and Saul dies on a battlefield with his son Jonathan, the father of Mephibosheth. And when this King Saul is killed, well, as they would in antiquity, they not, not only go after for him, after him and his commanders and his leaders, but they would go and extinguish all of the family to make sure there was no future threat and also to make a sign of dominance that, hey, we are ruling the kingdom now. So the nurse picks up, we'll call him Mephi for abbreviation. Mephibosheth is hard to say 20 times, but she picks up Mephi and she begins to run out of the palace in fear. And we don't know, we don't have details on the accident, but we know it was pretty severe because she drops Mephi and he's crippled in both feet, this adorable little five-year-old boy. And as it would play out in that time in history. Now being disabled is, is horrific in any age, isn't it? But back then it was different than today. You see, I've been able to walk those streets in the Mideast and those that the Bible calls them the lame, the halt and the blind and the leprous, those four categories, they usually sit along the roadsides near the ditches with a hood over their head and they hold their hand out and they beg for alms all day long. The life of a crippled is destined to be a life of poverty and a life of begging. Not only that, the lame were not allowed into the palace to worship under old Judaism. And so they would be relegated to be second and third class citizens because of their handicap. Couldn't come up to the palace whatsoever on Mount Zion. So here is a young, gorgeous little boy who was once the joy of his dad with a life and a future. And now his life is completely shattered. He's gonna live a life of shame and a life of poverty and Mephibosheth or Mephi, this is his destiny. But let's, let's fast forward. He's five years old, 16 years after this event. King David used to be Psalmist David, now he's the king and Israel is at an all time high. Their military power unmatched in the earth. The wealth of Jerusalem and Israel known throughout the world and they are ruling and reigning. And so there's this prolonged period of peace in Jerusalem and in Israel. And one day David is just pondering his past. I like to see him out on the veranda of the palace, you know, and he's overlooking his kingdom and his wealth and his cattle and his horses and his servants. And he remembers something. He remembers a covenant he made with his friend, Jonathan, the father of Mephi. And he says, hey, I, I made a promise to my friend and I won't go into the story, but Jonathan gave up his rightful place at the throne and told David, you'll be king in Israel. He rep recognized the authority on David's life. And so David says, man, is there any way I can keep this covenant? Now, as I'm telling you this story, Jesus is in the story, you are in the story and people far from God that'll be a part of this church in the future, they are in this story. So David, he says, hey, I, I wanna see if I can come through on this covenant. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse one. It says, one day, David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? 
He summoned a man named Ziba who'd been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked, yes, sir, I am. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I wanna show kindness to them. And Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive, he's crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. In Lodabar, by the way, Lodabar in the translation of Hebrew, it means a place of barrenness, a place without pasture. So here, Mephibosheth, which means shame, the actual root of the word means shame. The full word means the breaker of shame. So here's the son of shame in a barren place. At home of Machir, son of Amiel. So David went, um, sent for him and brought him to Machir's home. And his name was Mephibosheth. And he was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, greetings, Mephi. Mephi replied, I'm your servant. Look at this. He said, don't be afraid. In other words, he'd been called up to a place that he didn't think he deserved to be there. And as it would be, a, a king, it wouldn't be uncommon for them to um, put to death any grandson or anybody in the lineage of a previous king to protect their own throne. So Mephi was afraid for his life. And David said, I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father. Uh, this promise was a covenant. Uh, I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. This is such a beautiful story of redemption. You see, David, it would be prophesied of him some 14 generations later that the son of David would sit upon the throne of King David. And that son, 14 generations later, was Jesus from the root of David. And so David is a type of Jesus in this story. And he goes and he finds a broken man who once had promise, but life kind of dropped him. And now he's waiting for his death. But instead of his death, there's an inheritance that he has not realized is coming his way. <laughs> it's the story of the gospel. You thought you were destined for a life of shame or brokenness or the divorce ended it or the bankruptcy ended it or the addiction ended it. You thought, hey, I'm gonna end up in a barren place, man with the brokenness of my past. I'm crippled, I'm wounded. And then one day the king shows up. He knocks on your door and he says, hey, I'm taking you to a table that you can't even comprehend the scope of what I have for you. Isn't God amazing? Isn't the gospel amazing? My story is I lived a life of addiction. I rebelled against God at a young age. I came from a broken family of, of alcoholics in the lineage and adulterers in the lineage and a father in ministry who failed morally. And I rebelled, my sister rebelled even worse than me, I like to say. You're welcome. You know it's true. But you know, God comes to those that are broken and left in a barren place. He knocks on the door and he says, hey, the king has sent for you. Let me just give you three things that'll apply to your life about Mephi out of this story. The first one is the brokenness of others precedes our fall. The brokenness of others precedes your fall. Now, let me explain that for a minute. Another way to put it is this way, is life drops us. And yeah, we make choices and you've made choices and you've made decisions. And don't get me wrong, you will stand before God to give an account of the things you've done in this life, both good and evil. And we'll stand alone before the throne and we won't be able to blame granddad or uncle Billy Bob or anybody else. But here's the reality of life. It was the fall and the brokenness of Adam and Eve that allowed sin to enter the human race. 
The reason that there's disaster and floods and fires and disease and starvation is because the entrance of sin into our planet. Never shake a fist at God and go, God, why did you let this happen? Sin is the core and the impetus of all that is being broken and destroyed on our planet. God has come to redeem, not to punish. He's not a punishing God, he's a redemptive God because the justified anger of a living God was poured out upon his son on the cross. And all that righteous indignation, the Bible calls it, was infused into the body of Jesus so that you and I could receive the mercy of Christ. So life drops us, man. The garden drops us. And maybe in your life, maybe there has been abuse emotionally or physically or sexually or something crazy happened. And maybe the ex left you and someone had an affair, betrayed you, or maybe your uncle was a bad man or your dad was an alcoholic. And it's true that life drops us. I think about this beautiful little boy, Mephi, at five years old. He did nothing wrong. He's in innocence, but he had a wicked granddad. And because of his wicked granddad, he experienced the fall. And the reason I point that out is not to give anybody a hall pass on their sin, but what do you say we become a church that never judges people, that never looks down and condemns the most broken of people to come into these doors. I'll tell you why, because you don't know their story. You don't know who dropped them. You know, people look at me and, you know, we pastor a big church now and I get to travel and stand on big stages and, and people look at me and they talk like, I've always been this way. Like I came out of a pastor catalog somewhere, page 473, just, oh, there's a nice one. Look, he's, he's got nice boots. Let's pick him, you know? No, if you knew my past and the emotional damage and the physical damage and the mental damage that I suffered, people would never look at me when I came into the house and go, oh, there's a, there's a leader. And I say this, let's, let's be a church of grace. Let's be a church when people come and they are coming and they will come that we never prejudge. We don't live in prejudice of their condition or their crippled situation or their brokenness because we have it together at some degree and grading on a curve, we're all a mess. There's none righteous, no, not one. And those that think they're righteous and got it together, they are truly the most messed up of us all. A baby amen from the cheap seats, please. Okay, thank you. Second thing I wanna tell you is a covenant of grace precedes our pain. A covenant of grace preceded your pain. Do you know that 10 years before Mephi was born, David is with Jonathan up in the woods in the mountains where David was hiding from a wicked King Saul and Jonathan came to him and, and said, hey, you will be king on the throne and he encouraged him in the Lord and David made a covenant, a promise to show kindness to him 10 years before Mephibosheth was ever born, 15 years before the accident, some 40 years before Mephibosheth was brought in and sat down at the table, I guess it'd been 30, 21, 10, 31 years, my bad, 31 years before he's seated at the king's table again. I say that and I bring out the point to say this, that it says in Chronicles that God keeps his covenant to a thousand generations that he remembers his covenant forever. And there was a covenant made for you. There was a covenant made for me on the cross long before we ever dropped onto the planet, long before we ever rebelled against God, long before we ever went our way or we ever realized our need for a savior. He made a covenant with you that comes into play on your worst day. 
Don't you love this about the grace of God? You're just doing your own thing, living your own life, and people go through seasons where I don't need God. And in your 20s and 30s, I can vaguely remember back, you know, it seems like you're bulletproof, man. You can eat anything, drink anything, do anything, try anything, and you just bounce back. And, and there's a season of life where it feels like you don't need a savior. But even in those seasons, there was a king who made a covenant, knowing that one day you would face brokenness and knowing that one day pain would come into your life. But a covenant of grace preceded our pain. You know, I, I love the fact that the root of Mephi's name means to break in pieces or to be broken. Now, you know, back in the day, names had more significance and meaning. And I don't know why you would ever name your kid that, right? Because if you really extrapolate it out, though, his name meant um, to be the breaker of shame. So God's intention for him was to break shame, I believe, off of his life, but off of others. And so this breaker of shame, who knew shame, who lived in a barren place, God said, I got a covenant and one day. The full glimpse of who you're gonna be is gonna be revealed. I think that's true of some people here in the room. You've seen the shame part, you've seen the brokenness, uh, you lived in a barren place, you have a sense on the inside that there's more to life than this and there's more to my calling than what I've seen. And maybe you're just in that season where you're getting called up and your identity, which is once a shameful situation in a barren place, God says, now I'm making you the breaker of shame. I'm gonna show people my redemptive plan through what I do in your life. And you'll be one who prepares a table for someone else. <laughs> Isn't like this just like our God? He brings us to a table we're undeserving of and makes a covenant that he doesn't break even when we don't realize it. Sits us down at a table and saves us and restores our soul and gives us a hope and a future. And he says, hey, I want you to call your brother-in-law. I want you to reach out to your dad. I want you to talk to that coworker. I want you to walk through your neighborhood slowly and look around and pray for people. Why? Because the king's always pulling out a new chair for someone who's yet to come to the table. Last thing I want you to know today is grace prepares our place at the table before we ever arrive. Before we ever arrive. <laughs> this is the gospel. Let me give you the, the palace scene here. It's Friday night in Israel, Shabbat service, getting ready to go. The blowing of the shofars, the kippahs on the heads. They're getting ready to celebrate and dance around the great wall. And before the celebration, there's a dinner that takes place. And the King David comes into his palace and he's seated. And there's much pomp and circumstance at the table. And as he sits down, his family begins to come in. The first is Amnon, the oldest son. Amnon was a leader in Israel. He was distinguished and he sits down next to, to David. And then here comes Tamar. How many know who Tamar is? Do you know there's a short list of people in the Bible that the Bible says that she was beautiful? Now get this straight. When the canon of scripture says that you're beautiful, you're fine. You got it going on. Tamar was a beautiful girl and she sits down and then they hear a rustling and out of the, out of the study, here comes Solomon. Because, you know, Solomon, he's in there writing poems and proverbs and such. He comes out with a few of his wives. He had quite a collection. And his wives have been dressed in the finest of uh, Egyptian Versace and Roman Gucci. And the Kardashian girls had nothing on these ladies, right? And they all line up at the table. And as they're sitting there, they, they hear a loud chariot outside, probably subwoofers thumping. And who is it? It's Absalom. 
he comes up. He's rolling up in there. If they had spinners back in the day, they were on his chariot. Absolutely comes in. He's flipping his long black hair. He's got a babe on his arm. Instead of calling the king, he's, hey, what's up, pops? You know, rebellious little punk that he was. Absalom sits down at the table. They're all gathering in. Oh, and then here's Joab. He was uh, David's nephew. He was the commander of the armies of Israel. This guy would have been in muscle magazine, ripped, tatted, tan. He's got a bad attitude. And here they are, the palace crowd. See them, genetically preferred. These are the lipo, the lifted, the injected, the well-dressed, the highly educated. It's the palace crowd. You don't get in this crowd without knowing somebody or being born into this kind of royalty. And I could see him sitting there for dinner and all of a sudden they hear some commotion in the hallway. It's a little bit out of pace. It doesn't sound like someone walking because there's kind of a step and and a weight and and a curtain is pulled back. And there's some servants and they're carrying a 21-year-old good-looking kid, Mephi. And everybody's stunned. They've, They've never seen a crippled in the palace. They've never seen a broken man on Mount Zion in the king's presence. And David says, uh, Tamar, would you scoot over one? And Solomon, could you just move down a bit? And they all begin to move their chairs. And they bring in Mephibosheth. And they sit him down next to the king. Ah, I love this. I love this picture. This is your God. This is what he did to your life when you were broken. This is what he does. This is who he is. One of my favorite verses, Second uh, Samuel, bring this one up. It says that Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was crippled in both feet. I want you guys to hear something. This is the father's house in San Francisco. and I'm gonna ask the band to come. Because David is Jesus in the story At some stage in your life, you either were or you are Mephibosheth, needing healing from your brokenness. Hopefully you're not one of the condescending relatives that sat at the table thinking they deserve that place. That would represent the religious crowd. But there's another group of people in this play, and here's what I came to bring you today. As I believe that there's an unnamed group of people that had a strong role in this play, because when David heard that Mephi was, was up in Makur and he was up in Lodabar in a barren place, he sent his servants to go get him. Can you imagine this 21-year-old kid whose life was a disaster? And one day he's sitting there and he hears, there's a knock on the door. Representatives of the king, is anybody in the residence? And somebody goes to the door for Mephi because he can't walk. And they open the door and it's the servants of the king. And they said, is there a Mephibosheth in the house? Son of Jonathan, grandson of King Saul. And a great fear, they pointed at him. And they picked him up and they carried him and they brought him to the table. I want to commission you today. I'd like to appeal to you, Father's house, that that's who you are. You're servants of the king. We can't fix people at the Father's house. We, we don't have some secret sauce or strategy or teaching program. That only Jesus can satisfy a soul. Only Jesus can heal brokenness. Only Jesus can quench the thirst that people have. But I tell you what you can do. You can go knock on their door and you can bring them 
You can bring them to the table. And when they come to the table, the thing that they've always longed for, they're gonna find in the presence of the king, acceptance, healing, and love. Yeah, they may still carry their brokenness. I, I, you know, I wish the story ended with Mephibosheth getting miraculously healed. But I do know this, that today he's in the presence of God, completely whole. And I wanna appeal to you as a church to to call people in your world. Because this table's not just for you to have a church. Some of you have gone to church, a previous church. We've had people that are here, I see all over the room, and some of your helpers are from the Vacaville campus or East Bay campus. This is not about just another church building. This is a table. This is a table for broken people. I drove past hundreds of thousands of them on my way in, and they're just waiting. And all it would take is pulling over. I'll end with this story. A few months ago, I'm driving through my neighborhood, and it reminded me of this story because there's a guy in my neighborhood, and and he walks, and he, his, his left side is paralyzed, and he kind of, his arm is drawn up, and he, he kind of walks like this, and I always see him in my neighborhood, and I'll go by, and I waved at him for a while, and he smokes a lot of cigarettes, so all day long, man, this is what he does, and so I told the Lord, I said, Lord, I just, help me, I, I want to minister to this guy, I just want to show him the love of Christ, and so a few weeks back, I pull over, and I roll down my window, I said, hey, man, how you doing? He looked at me like, what, what's up? I said, what's your name, man? My name's Dave. He goes, I'm Bill. I'm Bill. I said, Bill, I've been praying for you. I see you walking through my neighborhood. And I had a little chat with him, and I said, how could I pray for you today? And he, he, looked, he looked at me like, are you serious? You pull over and you ask me if I need prayer? And I said, that's it. And he said, as he's walking away, he says, pray I have a good day. A week or two goes by, I see Bill again. I pull over, I chat with him for a little bit. I said, hey, Bill. I said, what's my name? It's Dave, come on. I remembered your name. So we started developing a little relationship. And then I told him, I said, I'm gonna bring you a pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving. I said, I'm gonna see you out here. And I, I found him. And Actually, the baker, Tom the baker, is coming to our house. Um, it was a day before Thanksgiving. And I told Tom, I asked him, I said, I got a friend, his name's Bill. And I told him about Bill. I said, would you make him a pie? Well, as Tom's coming to my house, he sees Bill in the neighborhood. He picks him up. He drives him to my house. He gets out of the car and there's Bill and his pumpkin pie. And I'm like, Bill, you, you got your pie, bro. And I, I put him in my car and I said, where do you, where do you wanna go, man? It's Thanksgiving, where do you wanna go? And he goes, I want a Mountain Dew. So I said, all right, let's go to the store, man. I bought him like the biggest triple liter, which I don't believe that stuff will kill you. But anyway, Bill wanted the Mountain Dew, but I took him to his house and talked to him about his family. Long story, but at the age of 25, he, he suffered a severe stroke, paralyzed on his whole left side, completely shattered his life. And he lives in a shabby house with his dad and his mean girlfriend. And he told me his girl, the dad's girlfriend was mean. And sure enough, I went in and she was mean. I share that simple story. And by the way, I'm going to invite Bill to church and he's going to come when he's ready and we're going to preach the gospel. And I'm not going to tell him I'm the pastor for sure until he's like sitting on the front row and I walk up to preach. I'm like, I gotcha. <laughs> Love you, Bill. More pumpkin pie if you just listen. Here's my question. Who is Bill in your world? In their spirit, in their marriage? It's walking through your neighborhood. 
And if you could see in the spirit, they're paralyzed and they're addicted and they're hurting. I think if you just pull over and say, how could I pray for you? You start a conversation, you take them a pie, invite them to church. They sit at the table, they come to know Christ. Who knows? Maybe Bill who lives in shame will be a breaker of shame. Maybe someone needs to hear his story. This is the way the kingdom works. This is why you're here, Father's house. This is why we exist. Because <laughs> people far from God, they're thirsty. And if Jesus was standing downtown at the Force One building or the LinkedIn or on the top of the Twitter building in their little garden up there, he'd probably stand up and yell over the financial district, hey, is anybody thirsty? Come, drink freely of this water. Amen? I hope you get this. I hope you sense God's heart for your community and your city. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.